Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Well, welcome to a special podcast, listeners. Today is actually Alan's birthday, or at least close to it. It, Anyways, happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah, this would be releasing, uh, I think it's like actually the day before. I think it's on the 4th, if I'm not mistaken, is when this is coming out. Uh, My birthday's on the 5th, so... Mm. It's the day before, but it's closer than the week after, so here we are. Well, you wouldn't know it. Alan is turning 50. You wouldn't That's right. You would guess it by his voice. He sounds very young, but he's actually very old. No. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, just... I'm as old as my dad. Actually, older than my dad. <laughs> no, younger than my dad. Born by a few years. Yeah, pretty much. That's exactly right. So, Alan picked a very interesting movie that I was really, I was really glad you actually picked... Um, I'm going to let you tell them what, if you missed the title of the review, I'm going to let Alan like tell you about the movie and whatnot, but it, I'm glad you did because it gave me a, like a really good reason to come back to this movie and dig into it because I hadn't seen it since theaters. Yeah, no, I'm with you. This, so uh, the movie I picked is three billboards outside of Bing, Missouri. Again, if you haven't seen the title, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the movie I picked this, uh, for this birthday pick. And I had shuffled around a few things. Um, and I think one of them was like maybe the lighthouse. Cause I mentioned that when the Oscars were happening oh. last year, as it was one of my, one of my favorite movies of that year, I think it was my number, my number one. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was flowing around in my head and there were a couple of more, other more choices. And I was thinking, yeah, kind of, but I you know it's not like this is the one I want to talk about this year. Right. Um, and then I came across three billboards. I was taking a look at my movie shelf and I came across it and it's like, that's the one that's what I, that's what I want to watch because when this movie came out, um, it was a movie that when I watched out of the theater, because I watched it for a while, right? I watched it before it even had a trailer. I was like, keep my eye on it because it looked super interesting to me, right? And mm-hmm. it was a movie that when it finally came out and I finally was able to catch it in the theater, I was like shook when I walked out. Um, I gave it a perfect 10 right in that oh, moment, wow. which doesn't really ever happen, giving a movie a perfect 10 walking out of the theater. So I was, this is a movie that, for I, I like you, Corbin. I've only seen it once. That was when it released in the theater back in the day. Um, so yeah, this was a movie that I really wanted to return to, and just for whatever reason, had I I had the Blu-ray. I think I even pre-ordered it, but had yet to return to it. And I remember having a lot of memories with it when it first came out. So yeah, that's why I picked Three Billboards. Yeah, and I remember I I didn't know anything about this movie when it was coming out, it was, I felt like it was kind of one of those sleeper hits that didn't have a very wide theatrical distribution and not many people knew about it, except you'd probably read about it online. And then it was one of those movies, at least for me, that everybody was like buzzing about kind of like La La Land, where it was like really hard to actually see the film in theaters. Um, But everybody was like, you got to go see it. It's incredible. So I, all I remember is you were back from college and I want to say it was probably around this time actually of time of the year. And I remember the East Theater always showed these kind of indie films. Um, That's right. For, yep. 
very limited run, like one or two weeks probably. And I just remember like one Sunday morning, you're talking to me and you're like, so I saw this movie called Three Billboards. It's just absolutely amazing. You got to see it. And um, I, I had like heard bits and pieces of it by that point. Like it was one of those talked about movies, like we're probably going to see it at the Oscars soon. Um, so I actually didn't get to see it until the Best Picture Film Festival that my dad and I went to uh, for the Oscars. That's right. This was also the year that the Oscars was delayed by a few weeks because they didn't want to run into the, the Olympics. Um, but yeah, I'm oh, actually... Yeah. We can, I, when I was taking a look at the, uh, like the money that it made in the box office, it was actually kind of funny because when it first came out, it did pretty all right in the theater. And then once the Oscars like released like their schedule or like the, the runners up and all the nominations, you saw the money just like make another a jump, right? When that, when that was released. So I think that's probably where, uh, most of the money for this movie came from and why it ended up getting so much money and so popular, especially when the Oscars came out it being on that list and i think yeah even being nominated for best picture at the time like that was a big deal so i mean of course oh yeah once that once the season kind of help it comes into play and you know the this is released of all the nominations theaters start bringing those movies back in to kind of so people can actually take a take a watch before the actual ceremony and luckily this year you had a little bit extra time to you know actually catch these movies in the theater because again oscars were delayed by a few weeks i think it ended up happening in like early march other than like early February. Yeah, so I was actually really glad that I was able to see it theatrically and I was able to see it before the Oscars because it was up for a lot in major categories. And of course, I'm a, I'm a fan of Frances McDormand. I love her in Fargo. Um, I think anybody who's seen, who's like a, even a very mild movie buff would know about Fargo and probably has seen her mm -hmm. in that. So... Uh, yeah, I was very um, intrigued by this movie. It was, like you said, a couple months after you told me about it that I finally got to see it. But it's no surprise that this movie is highly regarded across the board as far as like scores go, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's currently sitting on IMDb at an 8.2 with, wow. as of right now, as of this recording, sitting at the number 151st, 151st spot in the in the top 250 list. Um, so it's about wow. one third of the way up. So at least for IMDb, yeah, it's very positive. That is very positive. And it looks like in 2018, it was at position 144. So okay. it's gone up slightly, but it really hasn't moved a lot um, over these past couple of years. Yeah, it looks like it's remained around that mark. Yeah, definitely. Now, for other scores, everything just honestly is very positive pretty much all across the board. Meta scored an 88, Rotten Tomatoes on a 90% critic score, 87% audience score. I didn't see, I didn't find a cinema score for it, um, but a letterboxed score of a straight 4.0. So basically all across the board, very high scores. It seems like critics have a little bit uh, more, uh, uh, they like a bit more than audiences do, but not by a whole lot. It sounds like everything here, according to these scores, Everyone's pretty positive toward it. I'm guessing the box office isn't too well reported or, or coming in very well because I don't think it was like a major theatrical distribution, right? It did get a wide release. I think it. I think at its peak, it was in probably around 1,700 theaters. Um, 
but in terms of you know getting its money back, it actually did rather well. I mean, especially for like you know a Fox Searchlight film. Um, so it had a budget of twelve million. Uh, opening weekend, it, ga- it gained back three hundred twenty-two thousand dollars. Which, mm-hmm. to be fair, <laughs> it was only in four theaters when it came out. So right. you know, it's kind of hard to get into millions with that. But overall, fifty-four point five million domestically, one hundred seven dollars in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 161.5 million, which wow. on a $12 million budget is pretty good money. Yeah, that's really incredible. I had no idea that it grossed that much, especially because this is an indie film and uh, Fox Searchlight is, well, I don't even know if it exists anymore, but that was their more independent label. There's also every, like kind of the major studios has those. There's the Samuel... Goldwyn Mayer mm-hmm. classics or whatever. Um, I can't remember the other ones, but um, Fox Searchlight usually puts out some pretty solid content. But um, we've kind of teased it already. This was huge at the Oscars. So what did it win? And like, what was it nominated for? It got seven, it got seven nominations of the Academy Awards. It won two of them. So it won performance for an actress in a leading role, which would have been for Frances McDormand. And it won for performance for an actor in a supporting role, which was Sam Rockwell. Um, so it got those two Oscars where it's wins for the night. And then it was nominated for, as I mentioned, Best Picture, also Best Original Screenplay, Best Performance for an Actor in a Supporting Role. So that's two supporting role uh, nominations. Best Original Score and Best Achievement in Film Editing. So seven nominations is nothing to sniff at. You know, it, that's a good number of nominations, even though I only walked away with two. That's still very surprising. And this has not been the first time that this director, or at least a movie that this director was a part of, was at the Oscars either. I think his first film was also at the Oscars. Yeah, his uh, original short film, Six Shooter, was up for Best uh, Original Short Film back in 2004, I want to say. Uh, somewhere in the early 2000s there. Yeah. So I, I did actually, this is kind of funny, but I... Uh, kept a, I do an Oscar checklist every year where, um, Alan and I both do this, where we watch all of the Oscar, major Oscar nominees. So I was trying to see where I actually placed, um, three billboards on that list. So I'm sorry to say it, but I did not have three billboards winning best picture. I personally wanted Phantom Thread to win. And if Phantom Thread didn't, if Phantom Thread didn't win, I actually had Dunkirk in number two, three billboards at uh, number three for me. That's right. I actually forgot that uh, Phantom Thread was released the same year. Yeah, I didn't watch that one until I don't think I ever Mm -hmm. actually ended up catching that for the Oscars. I think I ended up watching it finally after, like a couple months after the Oscars had aired. Um, Yeah, Yeah. oh, I loved it. You know, I did actually have Frances McDormand winning for Best Actress. Uh, she was my number one pick. I was really glad she got it. Um, as for Supporting Actor, um, Woody Harrelson was at the bottom for me. I'm not saying his performance was bad, but I really um, I like everybody else, um, including Willem Dafoe was my number one for the Florida Project. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, looking at – I actually found the checklist um, – for that for this year i actually had three billboards as my number one for winning best picture it didn't of course um yeah but it wasn't it didn't surprise me you had it there well we do actually talk about this i kind of forgot about that um we talked about all of our picks and who we wanted to win and didn't want to win for the 2018 academy awards so we won't go through all of that right here we already did that in the podcast go ahead and check out the oscar sections 
um, on the podcast, wherever you listen to, but the easiest place to find it is uh, silverscreenguide.podbean.com. That's where everything is like really organized for you to check out and search through the podcast. Um, also link in the description below to the rest of Alan's previous birthday picks. I'm noticing a pattern here. Alan chooses a lot of independent movies. Yeah. Uh, to review. Yeah. You know, it didn't feel that long ago. We were just reviewing Cretia. That's true. Actually, I think that was a, a year ago this time, probably. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, it's nothing. I guess it's a bit different because my first pick, my first, my first birthday pick was uh, Birdemic. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, the uh, quality's uh, stepped up since then with your birthday picks. Just a bit. But anyways, all of that is in the description below, so go ahead and check that out. Also, timestamps, if you're ready for our thoughts, just ready for us to jump into it, you can go ahead, jump in down there, um, jump around the podcast with those timestamps. Also, um, links to all of the podcast. We're on all major podcast platforms, to our other social media page, to our official website, and to our Patreon page where you can support us financially and also get some really great bonus content as well and really get more one-on-one -on -one interaction with us over there. All of that is in the description below. If you are listening on uh, podcasts or iTunes right now, then go ahead and give us five stars and go ahead and leave us a written review as well. That is not just to inflame our egos and make us feel like the greatest podcasters ever. That is to actually help us in the ratings and recommendations through Apple's algorithm so other people can find this podcast as well. It makes it easier for them. It helps grow the Silver Screen Guide community. It's a really great, easy, free way to support us actually, um, no matter where you're listening at. Um, leaving us five stars really does help. And it also does help us reach our goal of being verified critics on Rotten Tomatoes. That's uh, one of our 2021 goals. So Rotten Tomatoes looks specifically at the Apple podcast section, how many uh, reviews you have. I think you got to have like a four stars or higher and you have to have a certain number of, of reviews. I don't know where that comes in, but that's their rules. So that'll, that will allow us to contribute to the critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and not just talk about it. So those are some easy ways to support us. Remember, all of that is in the description below. So, Alan, you said that the trailer was very intriguing to you back when this movie was coming out. Well, actually, speaking of the trailer, I don't I think I actually ever watched the trailer for this. Um, I think I tried to stay away as much as I could, Oh, to be honest. I, I don't remember ever seeing a trailer for this. So you had heard enough interesting things about the movie to get you into the theater without the trailer. Yeah, pretty much. It was, I think it was oh, wow. basically exclusively um, just the IMDb page. I forget how I came across it, but just like, you know, it was maybe just been one day I was just, you know, on it and just came across it by accident and it got me interested. Um I don't remember ever seeing a trailer for it, like at all. <laughs> yeah, I think eventually I did see a trailer. So the main theatrical trailer I do remember seeing in theaters. I don't know what I what I saw before it, but nevertheless, this leads me to if you had saw any of these, there's three main trailers. If you had saw any of them, would that would they get you into the theater? Yeah, probably. Um, seeing the Fox Searchlight logo on it um, and then seeing that it's, you know, it looks kind of intriguing, you know, something about billboards that causes a stir in this small town. That's that seems kind of interesting. So, yeah, it most likely would probably get me to theater. You know, I, I very much enjoy independent films and 
this is one that looks a bit intriguing. Um, I got to say, there is a trailer that was meant. It was like there's like an online only trailer that they released. That one ended up being my favorite. That one definitely, I think, captures the tone of the film that was on. And I ended up seeing that through the Blu-ray. Um, but all three of these trailers, yeah. I think, would honestly get me in, especially the online trailer. Yeah, I think I'd probably be in the seats. I mean, I was at some point, regardless, of, even though I didn't see the trailer for this. But if I had, most definitely. Yeah, I remember all of the trailers catching my attention. And I specifically remember the opening of that theatrical trailer with Sam Rockwell driving around asking about the billboards. I remember that was like cracking my dad up. Mm -hmm. And so all of these trailers definitely catch my attention. And it would be a movie that I would check out. I would eventually see it. Um, I could only find like the Red Band trailer online i think and then with my copy of the film it came with the other two trailers but yeah that red band trailer is really profane yeah, and yeah definitely kind of has that shock value of like oh my gosh like what kind of a movie am i in for but definitely uh would catch my attention yeah well, listeners, if you haven't seen Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and you don't want the film spoiled for you, there definitely are some twists in this movie. So you should click pause right now if you haven't seen it. Go ahead, check out the film, and then come back and click play, and we'll be ready to talk about it. Frustrated with the local cops' inability to solve the murder of her daughter, Mildred rents out three billboards around her house. On the first billboard reads, Raped While Dying. The second, Why No Arrests? And the third, How Come, Sheriff Ullaby? This naturally causes quite the stir in the town of Ebbing, Missouri. Sheriff Wallaby approaches Mildred about them, but she won't back down, even after revealing that he has cancer. Father Montgomery visits Mildred and explains that while everyone is with her for wanting justice, they are against her with the billboards. Even her abusive ex-husband, Charlie, pays her a visit about the billboards. While at a dentist appointment, Mildred feels the disdain her doctor is showing toward her. In retaliation, she rams his handpiece into his fingernail, prompting an arrest. Later, when questioned about this, the sheriff coughs up blood and is rushed to the hospital. After being discharged, the sheriff takes his family out for one last time before shooting himself to spare his family the grief of watching him die. Hearing about this, Dixon takes out his anger on Red, the man who rented the billboards out to Mildred, tossing him out the window. This stunt, however, costs Dixon his job. Later, Mildred and her son Robbie take the billboard route home, only to find them lit ablaze. Mildred extinguishes the flames, but it is too late. In retaliation of this, Mildred then tosses Molotov cocktails at the police station at night, only to find Dixon was inside the whole time. James, a local citizen, had also arrived on the scene by accident and helps put out Dixon. He later helps Mildred's alibi, claiming that they were together that night and just happened to be walking by. Not long after that, Jerome, one of the workers who put up the original billboards, shows up at Mildred's place with replacements. And Dixon is roomed in the hospital with Red, who still shows Dixon kindness despite being thrown out of his window. After being discharged, Dixon overhears a conversation at the bar from a man who tells a story that is suspiciously similar to Angela's death. He causes a scuffle and gets some of his DNA and sends it in for review. Meanwhile, Mildred is on a date with James when Charlie and his girlfriend arrive. Charlie reveals that he was the one who actually left the billboards and apologizes for it. Anger begets greater anger, he says to Mildred. Later, the results come back negative. The man Dixon got the DNA from was not the guy who killed Angela. He tells Mildred, but is still confident that he did in fact rape somebody and has his license plate number. The two decide to take a trip to Idaho and along the way begin to question if they are really sure about this guy as credits roll. So one of the things that I think is very hard to pull off in a movie while still investing you is picking up the story after the major inciting incident and then creating a brand new incident that is the cause of the previous one that sets off this whole chain reaction. So 
we don't ever see the daughter being attacked. We only see her in one flashback sequence. We are immediately begin with the aftermath of all of that. It's been seven months. Yeah. And we realize this mom is ready to get things kickstarted once again because nothing's been happening. So she decides to do these three billboards out on Drinkwater Road. So what immediately struck me as ironic is that the Red Welby, the advertiser, doesn't even know about the billboards. And people don't even drive down that road since they put in the interstate, yet it becomes a major controversy that leads to some crazy consequences in the town. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because, you know, while it has been seven months, we kind of get to understand that of those seven months, Mildred has kind of also been living like in almost complete anger out of all, out of all this, you know, anger towards, you know, obviously that her daughter died, um, anger that the police haven't done anything about it, you know, all this stuff. And so it, it is kind of ironic that it's this road that nobody goes down with these billboards that nobody seems to know about who, uh, who actually owns them, um, that ends up causing the stir in the town, right? We, in fact, the first scene that we have is Mildred driving by those billboards, stopping, backing up, and we can kind of see something in her eye, like, I, an idea is forming, right? Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it is kind of like, it is kind of ironic that, you know, it's these these elements that don't really lead to much all of a sudden, you know, start to cause significant uh, issues within the town itself. Yeah, and I, I kind of think of this, um, all these characters, because there's kind of like three main characters and stories. There's Mildred and her family. There's Dixon and his mom and his path and then chief willoughby and like his family and he also has this uh interesting catalyst that we'll talk about a little later on but it almost feels like one giant group therapy session mm -hmm. where everybody has like these like major issues and it's like they've kind of been holding it up for seven months and now it's time to like let loose and scream it out in therapy until we can get these problems yeah. <laughs> figured out <laughs> But, you know, as I was saying, is like this story is like kind of built on irony. Um, once uh, Willoughby uh, dies, he is the one that pays for the rest of the sign, which, of course, like fuels more frustration. But it's like everybody's doing everything in their power to like not talk about the signs. They're passive aggressive. They're trying to destroy them. And Willoughby is like not going to let that happen until everybody can kind of get their feelings out. Um, also, when Mildred firebombs the police station, Dixon is the one saving his daughter's file yeah. or her daughter's file to show that he actually is willing to risk his life to save that. So there's just a lot of these ironic um, scenes in the movie that ironic character moments that are really good. Yeah, no, you're right. I guess I didn't think about, you know, how much irony there really is in the story until now that you're pointing it out. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. This movie, it almost rides on it like as if it's like it, it rides on it almost as if it's like, you know like a main point of the story because, you know, it's all these characters, like you were kind of just saying, it's all these characters kind of just lashing out almost like instinctively instead of like taking the time to try and fix the issue that's happening here, which Sheriff Fulby does, which is ironically after he's dead, um, that he that he tries to like start fixing things, right? And so you're right, I guess I didn't really notice this until just now about how much irony there really is in the story because it is, you know, it is the most, it is the weirdest things that end up causing the most stir and the most change 
like for instance, Dixon, who for this whole movie has kind of been, you know, rather pathetic. Um, and we <laughs> kind of understand is very much um, not a very good person. Um, he does do as his first act of doing something good, which is trying to save the Angela Hayes file and in the process almost mm-hmm. gets burned alive. So yeah, you're no, you're right. I, I guess I didn't really notice how much irony there really was, how much irony is fueling the story until now that you're bringing it up. Yeah. And it's also, I think the movie is trying to tell us that we can learn things from people we never would have given a second thought to because we may have already prejudged them on something, or they may have actually done something significantly bad in the past, but that doesn't mean they're not redeemable characters Mm -hmm. Um, of like, ironically of all places from all people, Charlie, her ex-husband is the one telling her that anger begets anger. And he's the one flipping tables and yep. uh, what does he do? He puts like a knife to her throat or something. He, yeah, he he tosses the kitchen table and then uh, chokes her and pushes her up against like, I don't know, I think it's the, like at the wall in the kitchen. And then it's the yeah. son who Super comes around violent. and puts the knife up to dad um, to stop him. Yeah. But yeah, he, yeah, you're right okay. though. He is like, he is, we find out before he's even shown that he was an, he was an abusive husband before they finally got in divorce. Yeah. So it's just kind of, it's kind of like, oh, that's rich coming from him. Right. Yeah. But even though it is coming from him because he kind of doesn't have a good track record of being that example, that doesn't make it less true. Mm-hmm. So just because it comes from, just because these messages come from people, um, like Dixon who throws red out the window, yep. which is, I couldn't, even, that was the craziest scene. I'm sitting there in theaters and my dad and I, our mouths are hanging open. We're so shocked. Yeah. And nevertheless, red gives him some orange juice and that does spark some uh, forgiveness there that you can actually change and be forgiving. So I got to say, I got to really credit uh mcdonough for writing those characters and those scenes how they all really intricately weave together Mm -hmm. and there's this great domino effect in the movie of how this action leads to this action and there's all these unforeseen consequences but ultimately it is a very cathartic experience for everybody they got to go through a lot of crap oh yeah it's really good for them in the end yeah and it's and when we really break it down too you have mildred um hayes who is very much a woman who has gone through a lot, right? We kind of find out as the film goes along, not just the incident with her daughter, her daughter dying, but also like her marriage and everything um, has also kind of just been not very great. And so we already have this really hardened character who is frustrated not only with her past life, but also with the, uh, as she sees the shortcomings of the police department, not figuring out the case with her daughter. And then you you have on the opposite side, which is, um, which is uh, Dixon, um, who is also somebody who's rather pathetic, but also we find out bits and pieces here and there that there is some kind of controversy where he had tortured um, a black man while he was under custody. Um, But Mm -hmm. everyone claims it didn't really happen in the the police department. And so he's also one who's kind of also fire ahead and and whatnot and is always acting out of his seat, right? And so we have these these two forces who ironically um, go up against each other quite a bit unknowingly at some points. And it isn't until with Dixon, the one who's, you know, kind of not really all there, it seems like Dixon is the one who kind of kickstarts the two of them finally repairing, you know, what's actually happening. So you have these two characters who are rather immovable with where they're at 
in having them go look up against each other as well until finally one of them starts showing that compassion, which is Dixon when he saves the Angela Hayes file. That's when things begin to change um, there towards the end. Yeah, I do like that there is this kind of um, fire is used very symbolically as um, just kind of like shedding away the old yeah. and bringing about the new, like this almost baptism through fire that these characters go through, sometimes literally and then sometimes metaphorically. Um, yeah, and it is shocking because Dixon initially is doing the least. He's reading comic books. He really doesn't care about much in life at all. And then come to find out of all the people, he's actually doing the most to figure this out because he scratches that guy's face to get his DNA. And then he gets beat up pretty badly. And he's willing to go through that to try and figure it out. And you learn that he actually does want to be a detective, but he really is holding a lot on to a lot of um, hate and anger in his life. And he's just kind of become complacent. And at the same time, um, just very abusive with everything. But I really do like that this movie does have that message of um, just this message of like love, forgiveness, you know, moving on. If you don't, then you will just become stuck and you won't be able to go anywhere and you'll, it'll ultimately just consume your life. Yeah. So yeah. that's a that's a, um, a good message. One I wasn't sure would be in this movie dealing with such a heavy subject, but I'm glad to see that it's there. Yeah, absolutely. And you also get to see there towards the end in the final scene, um, there is that question that's raised, right? Because you, I think it's very, very um, evident with the character of Dixon where when before it reaches a certain point when he finally reads a letter from um when he finally reads a letter from sheriff wallaby you know as i mentioned he's rather pathetic and stuff and he is not he's portrayed as a very flawed very flawed character right um but you do get to see as you were just saying you know the character begins to change over time and while he was like a racist and somebody who tortured somebody in while they were in holding and, you know, is very short tempered and all this stuff, you do get to see that, you know, even though he's done all these bad things, you know, prior to the this movie, um, he does at least try to do something right. Right. And so you have this battle between these two characters where Dixon is already trying to do something right uh, and finds a finds somebody who very possibly could have done something illegal, right? It's not proven, but it, it could be the case, right? And then you've got Mildred on the other side who still wants justice for her daughter. Um, they come across that, oh, okay, and then there's a guy that may have done something wrong, may have done something that's similar to how uh, Angela ended up dying. Maybe we should go after this guy, right? And before we actually get to see them do that, the movie ends, right? They, they start questioning, like, should we go down this route? Should we not go down this route? And the movie ends, you know, it leads up to audience interpretation. But that aside, you know, there is that definite through line of, you know, no matter what you've done, you know, are the question is raised, does that make, you know, everyone susceptible to being to be able to be redeemed for, you know, any past actions? There is that question that's absolutely raised um, in this film, which I think was kind of it was very surprising, especially for a character as flawed and as controversial as Dick, as Dixon. I got to admit it right here. Dixon is Sam Rockwell's performance is my favorite part of this movie. Dixon for me is my favorite part because a, I, I mean, he just is brilliant in his portrayal of the character and he really is very funny, but at the same time, 
Um, especially once he throws red out the window, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you realize this guy's kind of just a psycho, but then you realize that, uh, okay, maybe he's not a psycho. He really is just kind of this pathetic character that's just like really taking his anger out on everybody. And, uh, Willoughby has kind of been covering for him, not really, um, kind of enabling him almost with the consequences. So, I got to say, I especially rewatched this movie. I'm so happy Sam Rockwell got the Oscar and he is so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did think it was hilarious when he was reading the letter from Willoughby and uh, Willoughby says, no one will think you're gay. And if they do, then arrest him for homophobia. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole time he's just reading the music. And Dixon, of all people, is listening to this very calm, like operatic music. And there's just blazing fire going yep. on in the background that he doesn't realize. So yep. this movie is, I can definitely say it's a drama, but it has strong elements of like a dark comedy mixed in. It's pretty funny in a lot of parts, which surprised me on my second watching. Yeah, it, it definitely is a very funny movie. Uh, most of the jokes land for me. There are some that don't. But for the most part, this is... While it is a movie that's about a kind of a rather serious topic, right? You know, a main character's daughter was raped and then burned alive, right? Like that's it's kind of dark. Also, having these comedic elements mm-hmm. to it. It's it's like this dichotomy of you know comedy versus almost horror. It's not, it's not necessarily a horror comedy, but there is that dichotomy between serious and lightheartedness, right? Um, mm-hmm. That is definitely in this movie, and I would say without that, you know, I, I, you mentioned earlier that the style for of this director is nothing new, right? He's kind of perfected this style over his last few movies, it looks like. But this style is definitely what helps give this movie, like, you know, its own sense of identity, right? Because it is dealing with a very heavy topic and also at the same time, still has some very funny moments in it. It is also almost like a battle between, you know, what does it really want to be? Does it want to be, you know, that dark, does it want to be like a more, you know, drama, like a drama, or does it want to be like a comedy almost? It's almost like there's a battle between those two of them. Yeah, that is true. And you did address the ending of the movie earlier. So my feelings on that was in the theater, I was very uneasy at the prospect of, wow, okay, they're just going to go kill this or murder this supposed rapist. And I'm like, man, this is a really heavy note for this movie to end on. And I'm really not going to like this. Mm -hmm. But I do appreciate that these characters are conflicted. And they're like, "I'm, I'm not sure we'll think about it on the way. Yeah. So it just shows that their journey's not yet done, which I think is ultimately satisfying that we are seeing these characters at the beginning of their like catharsis and journey onto more prosperous lives where they're able to move on from these problems. And they're going to do that along the journey. So, I mean, up to my interpretation, I don't think they will. I think that would go against like kind of where we've seen these characters' trajectory going. But nevertheless, I do like that he leaves us with that. It's not just one thing or the other. These characters are on a journey and these characters feel like real people and that's true to real life anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I guess my reading of it is a bit different, right? Because you have, uh, I guess it for these two characters, it's kind of read somewhat, somewhat, somewhat differently, right? Because you have the character of Mildred who wants, still is you know thriving to find that the justice for her daughter, right? She wants, even though it's not the guy who did it and they, they know that because of the DNA that was collected by Dixon, you know, the fact that she can 
put somebody away who did something similar to her daughter, supposedly, behind bars or even get rid of them, that might be justice enough in her own eyes. Maybe, right? Whereas with the character of Dixon, you know, now that he's done all, in his mind, he's done all this bad stuff up until now where he's trying to be, finally trying to do something good and trying to change himself. And he does find that, while he does find this guy and, and ends up not being, you know, the guy that they were looking for, the fact that he's going on this journey or going supposedly on this um, to t put somebody away, right? To kill somebody and get rid of that bad egg um, also is maybe fuel for him to feel like now that I, now I've done something or go I'm going to do something that is good, right? So it's a, it's again, another conflict between these two characters where it's all based around assumptions, right? We're assuming that this guy did this bad thing, right? Even though he, it was only based on a story that Dixon overheard at the bar when he was telling somebody else, which could have been highly inflated. And it's, uh, of course, assuming that, you know, they can find him and assuming that he did do these bad things, like actually, right? So it's, it's both on much of these assumptions and it leaves these characters very conflicted, even though they're drawn to go after him because they want to finally finish off what's been eating away at them for so long. Yeah, and I mean, I really think it was appropriate for, as you said, the director leaves it not necessarily on a cliffhanger, but it leaves it up to us to realize where these characters have started and where they might be going. So I guess I'm glad that we don't see this epilogue where they get there and they make one choice or the other. I think that was the best move. Yeah, no, not to make that choice on screen. I agree. I love that it is left completely up to audience interpretation um, to as to what the next events of the film are going to be, right? If they were to be made, what would it end up being, right? It seems you and I are on the same page. We don't think that they'll go through with it. We think that they'll get only so, and we may a little bit farther than where they're at when they start questioning and then they'll turn themselves back around and go back home. Um, so, but somebody else could read the, something completely different. They could read it as that they do end up going through with it um, and find that that ends up being somewhat fulfilling, maybe. I, I don't know. It, again, that's very, mm -hmm. it, depending on who you are, you could read it very, very differently. And I think that's why I do like this ending as much as I do, because, you know, it's it's rather open-ended. While you do get to see these characters go through this change, and at the very end, you know, they're given a choice, right? They're given the choice of... Um, finding the justice that they've been looking for for this whole film over an allegation, over an assumption um, that, some, that this person did something bad, right? It's, it, it's all it really is. It's just an assumption. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because Francis McDormand mostly plays this character very tough with very little sentimentality mm -hmm. in the character. But there is one scene that shows that She's just not purely driven by hate. She doesn't hate the police chief. She really isn't that way. She's angry and frustrated, but she just doesn't have this hate for everybody. And we notice that scene when Willoughby coughs that blood up onto her and he says, I, I didn't mean it. It was an accident. Yeah. And she says, I know, baby. And just those words show that she still does have this caretaker attitude that she has respect for life, especially because her daughter's life was just taken from her. And now Willoughby is a very young man with a young wife and children, and his life is ending as well. And um, I think she realizes that, especially in that moment, that she realizes his humanity, that you can criticize people through billboards or through different mediums, 
But nevertheless, these people are still humans with different attitudes. And they also have their own struggles of their own. I mean, it's horrible she lost her daughter, but these children and the wife are about to lose their dad. The community is about to lose one of their leaders. So that is actually a really powerful moment of where these two characters who kind of are, you know, on edge with each other kind of have this really tender moment together that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, no, you're right. And it's it comes so suddenly because he's like right in the middle of a sentence when he just all of a sudden just coughs yeah. on her, right? And it just, it happens so quick. Um, and the the emotion in that scene flips really fast, right? It's kind of, you know, kind of funny, kind of comedic coming from a scene that was like kind of a little bit horrific because she drills into the dentist's finger. Um, oh, yeah. Only to end. Cringe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And only to end when, um, you know, he coughs up blood on her and then what happens right after that when she walks away to go get somebody he's saying to dixon let her go you know let her be she's fine even though she was brought in even though she was arrested for um for harming somebody no you're right it is it's mm -hmm. kind of funny how fast you know that scene switches from one one emotion to the next um and how almost perfectly it plays it out because you know they like you just mentioned it is it is that you know sheriff wallaby is dying right so much just like how her daughter her daughter of course is dying you know it's it's kind of that almost as if it's like a reminder that, you know, her going through all of this and, you know, being so set on these billboards and finding out and finding the justice for whoever did this to her daughter, you know, you have the person who's sitting right in front of him who tried, but couldn't do it. Now he's dying as well. So yeah, no, you're right. It, it does. That scene is very, is very well done. The other scene I would think that really hits me and this got me too in the theater was when they're driving down the road and the billboards are on fire. Um, mm -hmm. and there is one line specifically, um, she tells her son, run home, get the other extinguisher. And when she comes back, um, Lucas Hedges is the son that who plays her son. He's, he, he oh, comes yeah. back with the other extinguisher. He's like, mom, don't do it. It's not really worth it. And she turns around and yells at him. She just yells his name, just Robbie, you know, remember that when mm -hmm. I was in the theater, that killed me. I was like, wow. I don't know what it was. It was just like, you know, the fact that she had gone through so far and now it's burning her, you know, hopefully this thing that would finally bring justice to her daughter is now burning to the ground. Um, and we do get to see finally how much she actually is, how much she she is driven, you know, figured this out, right? That ended up getting me in the theater back when I watched it. Yeah, there is that really kind of crazy moment where if you really think about what's going on in that scene, that is the exact spot where her daughter was raped and burned alive. Yeah. And right now she's in that spot and these billboards are burning. And it's almost like I wasn't there to save my daughter and I'm trying to do something with these billboards. And it almost feels like the whole town is against her. Somebody is going to now burn down these billboards. So she is trying to put the fire out in that situation. She's trying to, you know, save this, what she feels like is going to help out her and her family and help bring justice to her daughter. She's trying to put that fire out because she wasn't able to put it out when her daughter burned. I mean, it's really horrific when you think about the, mm -hmm. her daughter's burned alive, but when it is played out in that scene, and that is a great scene of emotion and also um, the way it's shot, where it's just that super wide shot of her running across the field between the billboards to try and put them out. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
it's a powerful scene. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's also, again, kind of funny. And we, I think we mentioned this before. It's kind of funny that, you know, the movie kind of leads us to believe that it was Dixon who started this fire at first, because it, the way that it's edited, it leads you to believe that, right? Because it's right after Dixon loses his job. And then he's at home and he says, I got to go do something, right? And he walks out the door. Um, and his mom's like, yelling, like, get back here. What are you doing? Right. And then not long after that, they come across the fire. So we assume, of course, that it's Dixon, right? Up until like one of the very last scenes in the film where they're sitting at dinner and Charlie comes up and just briefly mentions it, right? Like it's nothing almost and mm -hmm. says, I'm sorry for it. When we find out that, you know, of course, Charlie was the one who lit the billboards on fire and the whole thing changes. Um, and then you also get to see this almost, it's kind of, it's kind of funny, but also at the same time, you know, character growing to see Mildred find this out, but then not retaliate for it, right? She just sits the bottle of wine down and and I forget what she says exactly, but so it, but walks away, right? Doesn't retaliate uh, against her ex-husband for doing that. It's it's an interesting dilemma. Again, a little bit, I guess, some more irony as well there because a character who's, you know, we've seen retaliate mom uh, time and time again throughout this whole movie chooses not to do it when she finds out who really was the one who's the cause of this. Did we ever find out what Dixon was doing? Oh, what was he doing? Maybe I have it in my notes. Um, what he was doing. I, I forget exactly why he walked out. As far as I can remember, it wasn't. I don't think it was explicitly stated. I could be wrong. But if I guess if we know what he was doing, then this doesn't really work. But I do think there is room for interpretation that he is the one that actually did it and her ex-husband merely said that just to get a rise out of her because we know he also is against the billboards as well and we know that just because people claim they did things doesn't mean they actually did them just like the guy that dixon scratched in the bar right so i do think that just is up to interpretation for possible nuance because a lot of these characters it's really hard to trust what people say or what they do because I mean, they're all kind of crazy and they're all trying to just make each other super angry <laughs> and upset. But um, you're right. That's a good scene. And it also is very good writing from McDonough to just kind of call into question everybody's motives of what's going on here. But um, yeah, and you think she's going to go smash him over the head with a bottle. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um in fact, she just sets the bottle down on the table for him, which was a nice moment. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, too. I think that that is maybe left up to some more interpretation um, because it is edited in such a way where you would initially assume that it was Dixon and then Charlie reveals that, oh, it was me. So you're right. I think that there is some room for interpretation there or maybe both of them were in cahoots or you know, Charlie was just just for fun, just to mess with her, taking you know the blame for, uh, for what Dixon did, which is burn down, try to burn down the billboards. Yeah, I think that there is definitely room for interpretation there. Um, it's kind of, it feels like it's kind of clearly stated from the husband, but as you said, you know, how much can we actually trust him, right? Yeah, and it also could nicely wrap around to if Dixon did burn down the billboards, then there's a little bit of karma there that the police station is going to get burned down and he's going to get burned. So it's almost yeah. that reap what you sow. And I think that's just kind of the one of the main themes throughout this movie is um, reap what you sow. Mm -hmm. But 
um, I don't know. Did you get to see the where they talked about the one shot on the special features, how they uh, constructed the one shot scene in this movie? No, I, I I didn't get to see that part. I know that it took them, I think, uh, four or five times to get it just right. Um, but I don't think I watched how they ended up doing it. They were able to do it, yeah, in, in an afternoon. But, of course, they had to rehearse it, like you said. Right. But it was really fascinating um, because, yeah, um, the camera never breaks once Dixon goes out of there. The one thing that I found interesting is... Once he punches Red in the face and he goes down, then the actor Caleb Landry Jones runs out of the building, runs down the stairs, and the stuntman um, runs in. So he picks up the stuntman, throws him out, and they had this giant um, like box of like soft cardboard or something, mm -hmm. and the person fell onto that, mm -hmm. and then the truck drives away really fast. So by the time Sam Rockwell's down the stairs... Yeah. Then um, Caleb Landry Jones also had to run down and get all the makeup on right. as well. So um, I really like that uh, scene. It's one of the more memorable scenes and it's um, McDonough's favorite shot in the movie, he said. Interesting. I didn't really notice. I didn't know that the, <laughs> that's how it was done. I mean, I guess it makes sense. But yeah, this I heard very little about this movie, except that it was good when it did come out. And that was before I already like looked into it, like was curious about it. But I remember hearing it specifically about this scene. Uh, I mean, the only thing I actually knew was that there's a scene where guys throw out the window. And that's all I was yeah. told. But I was oh, told shocking. that that was one of the great, one of the best scenes in the whole movie. Um, so I was not expecting it when it came when it came up until, of course, Red was tossed out the window. It's like, oh, this must have been they were what they were talking about. Yeah, no, it's a it's a fantastic, fantastic scene. Um, absolutely. You know, and I just think the movie in general looks really good. A lot of the lighting, how it's like reflected off of characters. There was a lot of use of reds and whatnot, especially like playing into that fire uh, color. Mm -hmm. Red, you know, has to do with anger. So the movie looks really good. Definitely. And you think, you know, it's set in a very tranquil setting. I hate to burst everybody's bubble, but this was not filmed in Missouri. It was filmed in North Carolina. Yeah. So... Uh, but it looks really good, and uh, Missouri has some hills and lots of trees like that, too. But nevertheless, something I really like is that the town just feels alive. Um, there's a really great shot where um, Mildred is driving down Main Street, and the camera's behind her, and the camera um, pans to the right, and we see Willoughby and Dixon and the other officer um, just kind of having a scuffle, having an attitude with each other. And we don't know what they're talking about, what they're frustrated about. But nevertheless, we do see these characters living out their life and we don't know what they're talking about. They're not the focus of that scene, of that sequence, mm -hmm. which is really interesting to me. Yeah. Another thing kind of like that, I guess, is when Father Montgomery visits, um, visits the Hayes <laughs> and he is like, and he says, we, we don't really see too much of this. We think there is like maybe... Here and there, there are some things. But he says, like, you know, yeah, all, everyone here in town, or at least those who came to church, um, we're with you, right? We're with you that we want to see justice for, for Angela. Uh, but people are not very happy about the billboards. Like, everyone's against you with the billboards. There is a scene, a deleted scene that they had in at one point where uh, it was, it's after the scene when, um, when Wallaby coughs on her, when she's walking down the street. I think it's Willoughby. Willoughby? No, you're right. It is Willoughby. I think it is Willoughby. 
Well, there's there's a deleted scene um, after when Willoughby coughs on her when she's, uh, I guess, walking home or to her car when a couple of civilians stop and like tell her to take the billboards down. And then Jerome, the guy who give, and later gives her uh, the like replacement sheets to put on the billboards, he's also in the same scene. And they're like, take the billboards down. And she's like, you touch those billboards, I'll kill you. Um, and then Jerome is also there. It's like, yeah, she'll kill you or something like that. It was rightfully cut, but that does kind of help. I, I think the idea was, was trying to help kind of build like the the town itself, right? That more being the town as if it were a character in and of itself. You kind of get bits and pieces of it in the story. Um, but yeah, that was a scene where I, th- I think that they tried. Rightfully cut though, it doesn't really serve much of their mm. purpose. That's interesting. I'd be curious to see that scene. Um, I mean, I think we get enough of that, like when she's visiting the dentist and you can just feel she's not really welcome in the town. Um, there has been just this kind of frustration and kind of almost her she's become the black sheep uh of this place it seems like but yeah that that is interesting Mm -hmm. well are you done with positives because i i've got a couple negatives go ahead yeah go for negatives okay okay so i will say i don't know i i'm think i might be about to start a fight with alan well now i'm really curious (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I will say I think the the writing, the dialogue is actually a mixed bag for me with this movie because sometimes I think it's very well done, like just just very smart, brilliant, creative writing. Um, things that I think Tarantino can do or like Taika Waititi can do that it's like that's just really good writing Mm. but other times i just don't like how it comes across it feels like it's squishing together comedy and like just really seriousness way too close together and i just feel like sometimes that just doesn't work for me you know i I actually can agree with you on on some of that i think there are like i think i mentioned this a little bit ago um for me, I guess a good example of maybe not of me not really connecting with the dialogue as much is sometimes with the jokes. There are some jokes that don't land for me um, in this mm-hmm. movie, and sometimes I f- there are times where I feel like jokes, you know, they're there, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're trying a bit too hard to try and be funny, even though it doesn't really mesh, mesh very well with the film. Um, there is also, I think, a bit later, maybe to kind of piggyback onto what you were saying, just with dialogue in general. Um, it's when um, Dixon is reading the letter from Willoughby and he starts talking about, well, if you want to become a detective, you need to learn what it is to to love, right? What you need to become a detective mm-hmm. is love. Love comes through calm and through calm comes thought is what the line is, right? It's one of those <laughs> things where, yes, it's a nice tranquil line to say and, you know, is definitely needed to a certain degree. But at the same time, there's like a little subtlety to it. Oh, yeah. No, I I do agree with you. Um, The two that I'm thinking of is when Mildred is talking to the priest in her house and she gives this very Quentin Tarantino-esque dialogue or kind of almost monologue about those crypts and those bloods and how she like repeats it so often and just kind of pulls it off the top of her head trying to relate um, the clergy to a gang. I just didn't really find that to work. And to me, that was coming across a little too clever, especially when she keeps repeating, you know, those crypts and those bloods. 
that just didn't work for me. Um, also, when Dixon finds out that the DNA from that man isn't the match, and I don't remember the new chief's name, but um, Dixon's like, where was the classified country? And he's like, I can't tell you. And then all of a sudden, he just like, I'll give you a clue. It was Sandy. And I'm like, really? I'm like, why did we need to place that here? Because I'm kind of dealing, I was really hoping it was the guy and I'm just as let down as Dixon mm -hmm. and trying to make a joke or lighten the mood there. It just didn't feel like the right time. So that just came across as an odd choice for me. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that. The other thing is maybe this is going to get, get Alan up in arms. I don't know. <laughs> the other thing is I honestly never quite believe Mildred's almost like Rambo attitude or almost a Terminator-esque attitude. I understand like she's had to deal with a violent ex-husband and these wild children, but she's almost like too tough for me where um, you notice in the beginning of the movie, she has long uh, hair and the very first time we see her and then she like immediately cuts it really short. She like decides to don like maybe her husband's um, like jumpsuit, mechanic suit, wears these boots, always wearing a bandana. And I know in the um, special features, Francis called it Mildred's radicalization where, and she even said she was like kind of pattering, uh, patterning, is that a word? I don't know. But she does become like John Wayne once she puts up the billboard. That, that was what she said. I just don't understand why she is this tough where she just pops into the police station and she says, Hey, F head or whatever. Um, just at times where she's like ready to, ready to brawl, like almost very, very intense and tough. I just never quite buy it. Yeah. I, I can't, I guess I can see that. Um, I, I don't really have that big of an issue with her character, mostly because, I mean, for one, it is being played up to a certain degree um, to, you know, at least to make her character a little bit enjoyable and not so brooding all the time. Um, but at the same sure. time, as as we've mentioned, and as you also mentioned, right, their character has been through a lot. Like right? She's been abused herself um, by her own husband. And a lot of other things have happened to her and you know, her, her her daughter died, right? In, in a very horrible way. So it's like this thing as if it's been boiling up inside of her until finally just lets loose when she has this idea to put up the billboards to finally, hopefully, kickstart the investigation again. Um, and that's what we see for the rest of the movie is like her finally, you know, like acting out. And she already is a scary woman. And we do kind of get to see people like fear her um in certain scenes of this movie like the one when she's walking back up to charlie after she after he reveals to her that he was when he burned down the the billboards uh, he like legitimately is like scared when she walks up with that wine bottle um so right. i can i can kind of see where you're coming from but at the same time i think it also is played up um to a certain degree because a because of you know what her character has also of course been through and b because you know that just helps make her character a bit more enjoyable yeah, and she does have some really nice tender moments, so she's not like that all the time. Yeah. And she does bring forth some great emotional drama. I think her performance is great. It's just that sometimes she feels like an action star. And I don't know if she it's not like she doesn't have anything left to lose. And maybe that's why. But I mean, sometimes, like I said, it, it does come across she like is this action star, like she's going to go in there guns akimbo. She's got the explosion behind her. I mean, she has the audacity to take the dentist's drill and stick it into his thumb. And she just 
you know, busts into the police station, doesn't give a care about anything. She burns down the police station, which I can, I can kind of uh, understand that anger there, but I don't know. She just comes across a little too tough for me that I never quite, quite buy. But anyways, it's not, it's not, um, not like too dragging the movie down for me or anything like that. Do you think that maybe it's not necessarily her being tough, but her being desperate? Um, like desperate to finally have somebody actually like actually do something now that it's been so long since you know her daughter had died and nothing's happened. Do you think maybe that's what uh what's fueling this like anger that she has? Yeah, I think she's just done being like pushed around or told by anyone that's why she's like incredibly rude to the priest and she's not really afraid of her ex-husband anymore she has no respect for law authority um yeah i think you're right i think she's just incredibly mad and she's just ready to she has nothing left to lose yeah she really doesn't she doesn't really care she wants to figure this out she's ready to cause controversy and whatnot um, so in, yeah, I think you're right that she really is desperate and she's just not going to take gruff off of anybody anymore. I just think the way she's written sometimes comes across like, it's kind of funny in some sequences, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like you and Liam Neeson could maybe team up for something. You're like super tough. Yeah. <laughs> I will say my Ut utmost major major criticism with this movie is the way I feel it portrays suicide. You don't forget the suicide scene in this movie. You just don't forget it. Yeah. It's really hard to watch. It's incredibly heartbreaking to see his wife come and find him and the ramifications of that. Uh, it's almost impossible to watch for me. I feel like it. it's pretty hard for me not to see it this way that suicide comes across as almost the right thing to do for Willoughby in his situation. He doesn't really have anything left to live for. It's only a matter of time. So it does seem like suicide for Willoughby is the right thing to do. He, instead of being a burden or having these bad memories that his wife has to go through of like taking care of him, he just wants them to remember their last best day, this perfect day, which is kind of this very romanticized sweet sentiment, but I don't think that is uh, very noble whatsoever, even though I feel like the film tries to portray it as it's best if I just go and leave this world. I'm going to write these letters and through the letters, I'm going to be able to help these people. Nevertheless, it's a surprising twist about 50 minutes in and we still have an hour left. I just feel like they're almost portraying it as okay or the right thing to do. Whereas I feel like it would be much more right and noble for him to either live through the cancer and still try and bring them together. Even though he is an example, as he's dying, he's still able to help bring these people together. Or they could have just had the cancer take them really fast and he could have still written these letters and, and died. But I feel like the suicide was just not appropriate, did not like it at all. Yeah, that's a very complex part of the story as well. Um, because, yeah. you know, he, for what he stands for later in the film, how, 
you know, ironic that, you know, a dead man is the one who ends up bringing about the most change in these characters. You're right. It mm-hmm. is the fact that it is how he goes out that is probably the most controversial. I, I do agree with you. It is controversial that, you know, he doesn't want his family to, like, you know, watch him die. Rather, he would like to let them live with all the good memories that he, uh, that all the good memories that they have of him before all that bad stuff happens, right? So, no, you're right. It is, it is very controversial. And even now, I don't really know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of with you, but I, I also don't really know, you know, where I stand exactly with his decision to do that, right? Because it is one that, you know, you bring up a good question. Is it noble for him to do that, right? Do the ends justify the means in his, for his character, at least? Even though he does commit suicide and, um, yeah, even though he does commit suicide and bring his family all that grief, you know, does that mean that, you know, what he did afterwards, which was try and help these two other two characters out, and of course, there are other people as well, um, and get them down on a more correct track, does that justify what he what he did, right? It's it's a very complex question. It's it's one that even I I agree with you. Even it's even something that I wrestle with now, even watching even watching it, where it doesn't really yeah, it doesn't really portray um, suicide in I guess uh, a, a light that I guess I agree with, kind of with you. It's it's kind of hard to say, but I, I do I do understand where you're coming from. The only, I mean, it does show the heartbreak of the family. Mm -hmm. And uh, he talks about like, I know you'll be in pain now, but in the, in the end, you'll get over it and you won't have to, I won't be a burden and you won't have these bad memories. I mean, I'm going to definitively say right now, suicide's never the answer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's, it's never a good thing to take your own life, especially for your loved ones. And I find it um, just kind of utterly ridiculous that he's like, I don't want you to have bad memories of, you know, my wasting away body. Um, well, she has to have a memory of you uh, shooting yourself in the head out in the barn. I don't know how that's any better, right. um, and honestly. Maybe they're playing up on some more irony there, right? You know, even though he he thinks that he's going to bring about more good than bad if he ends it now instead of later. Um which maybe in a roundabout way he kind of does with other characters, you know, how they go down a different path because of him. Um, maybe, maybe that's it. I don't know. It, it's, it is, uh, it is one that, you know, you have to like rack your brain around because of, you know, trying to figure out and maybe even try to, to what I like to call, or even try to like, you know, empathize with them. Like why would he make this decision now? You know, is it going to bring, is it really going to bring his family, is family more, uh, more joy than pain, right? And the at the end of the day, is that really going to be the case? It's it's hard to say. It's hard to say. And like I said, maybe they really were going, or maybe uh, director Martin McDonough was also still going for some irony there as well. Like this movie's already filled with it, so maybe he was trying to go for some more there as well. It's definitely ironic that Willoughby was never any use to um, Mildred in real life. She felt like he didn't do enough. And also, he didn't seem to be like that good of an example to Dixon. He was just kind of keeping him from going off too far, I guess. But nevertheless, the ironic part is that once Willoughby dies halfway through, then characters are kind of tension definitely heightens big time by that event happening. And uh, there's a lot of heartbreak, but there is some catharsis and characters do grow out of it. 
I'm just saying um, there's no noble example to be found in that just because he wrote these letters. McDonough clearly chose suicide as a means for this character to go out and um, doesn't seem to show really any downsides to it, um, especially because the family is the one that's affected most. And they're um, pretty much out for the rest of the movie in the next scene. Yeah. We just see the wife crying and the movie never circles back onto them as well. So it's just for a heavy movie. This makes things a lot heavier and um, it just comes across as like the right thing to do with the way the dialogue is written and the way that characters lives seem to be better after his death because um, they're able to read his letters or something. Right. He, all I'm saying is it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be suicide. He could have um, died very quickly from cancer or he could have caught something else and died that way. The suicide I just felt was just not it was just way too heavy for this already heavy movie. And I just don't like the message they're trying to go with it. So it really does surprise me. But I was also surprised that he went out so quickly and he gets the Oscar nomination, even though he's in. Half the movie. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know if we talked about this, but did you think he deserved the Oscar nomination? For, I, I would like to have seen more of him. I, I think that seems to be, from what I've heard, that seems to be like a general consensus. Everyone wanted more of his character. Um, yeah. But. I agree. Yeah. So, it's hard for me to say if I would have liked for him to get the Oscar because I also feel like there's not enough of him in this movie mm -hmm. to like justify like, oh, he absolutely needs to get this Oscar. I think he does a very good job, but I do want more yeah. of him. So I don't know. I mean, he didn't get it anyways. He got the nomination. It went to Sam Rockwell instead, um, rightfully, I feel. Um, but it's hard to say. Yeah, I, once again, I agree. I don't think there was enough of him to probably garner the nomination. I think he did really good, but I don't think he did anything outside of I mean, I think he's just a great act. Woody Harrelson's a great actor in general. Yeah, that's true. So I just didn't see anything really special that he brought to this role, except um, maybe the suicide type thing and mm -hmm. the way that was all played out was, I don't know, maybe that caught some people's attention. I don't know, but I will say I was surprised. I'm like, wait, I thought he's going to be in the rest of the movie. Yep. And, um, but you know, honestly, between Harrelson and Sam Rockwell, such intense competition that I felt like there was no way um, Rockwell wasn't going to win it. Oh yeah, absolutely. One of my other things too is, we've mentioned this, you know, that this weed likes to ride on a lot of irony. Um, I feel like maybe that mm -hmm. goes a bit too far in some scenes. Uh, for what I, what I mean by this is there are a lot of uh, conveniences in this movie. Um, I think the biggest one that stands mm -hmm. out in my mind is when Dixon is put in the hospital um, for, getting almost getting burned alive by mildred uh red is his roommate <laughs> right it yeah. it seems like okay I, I understand again it's going to be somewhat ironic that red is one who shows compassion towards dixon um despite the fact that he tossed him out a window so that's fine and all but at the same time you know he's put in the same room um, as red, uh, that just seems just yeah. way too convenient for me. That, that's, an, that's, just a, that's just an example. Even the scene prior to that, that Dixon just happened to be in the police station as Mildred was throwing Molotovs at it, just all again, kind of convenient, but that's just an example of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. There is a lot of serendipity <laughs> happening <Yeah. laughs> in this town where it's like, 
Oh, I, you know, they could have changed that and it wouldn't have been that hard. Um, like red could have just been walking by his room and then just stopped in and yeah, making them roommates at this hospital is like a little hard to believe. And, um, Especially, I don't know how long he needs to be in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's walking around just fine. So why don't they just release him? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Why does he need to be there for days on end? But um, yeah, I mean, I guess I liked the way it was at least constructed of how um, they said, Willoughby left the letter for you. You probably should just get him, get it at the end of the day. And that happens to be the night she firebombs him. And then of course, Peter Dinklage's character is out there oh, yeah. and then they get to go on a date. That's another one too. And then that causes her to, yeah. And then that so happens to her to run into her ex-husband again. And then she learns about anger and then that she learns about forgiveness. And um, yeah, some of it is a little too like, oh, well that, that came together really well yeah um i think i would have been more okay with that if they probably would have talked about like um destiny or some kind of you know divine plan to everything how like you know there was like a purpose to this and i think the movie does a decent job showing that even though bad things happen good things can come out of it mm -hmm. but nevertheless this movie doesn't seem to really land on anything um all she talks about is a uh, when she's talking to the deer she says is there like no god and it doesn't matter what we do to any of us and she says i sure hope not mm -hmm. and whatnot but i would have liked a little bit more of that since as you said alan you brought up a good point a lot of these things just so happen to come together there's got to be a bigger reason for it than just coincidence, I think. Right. And like, again, that might be like kind of what they're going for in some of these scenes um, where isn't it ironic that, you know, this happened, right? As we were talking about, because they write on that a lot, right? But at the same time, it's kind of convenient <laughs> that this well, is the case. I'll tell you a movie that I'll tell you a movie that does that better is the movie Waves. That oh, you showed yeah. Me. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Where there is a lot of tragedy within the first half of the film. Mm -hmm. And through that tragedy, there is a purpose of bringing this family closer together. And they directly talk about, which was shocking, but in, like I loved it, how they talked about, you know, God was, there's a reason for that, how love can cover over this. Mm -hmm. And I think there was that opportunity here in this movie. There is an opportunity for this quiet cathartic scene but it just it only comes when she talks to the deer really which once again has to have some comedy injected into right. it about the doritos probably killing the deer which granted was funny but <laughs> everything just has to be funny yeah. in this movie <laughs> and that that was another one too i came really close to just picking waves but i decided not to um i don't really know why but it was it was all it was going to be waves until I came across this. I think it was more of I wanted to revisit this as who my thoughts are now because I know what the, the my experience was in the theater, um, but I yeah. want to see what it is now about three years removed from it. So it was almost waves actually. I I was actually expecting it to be waves I, yeah. or uh, but hey, there's many more birthdays and at least if you pick it in the future, you'll have more of a perspective that way because time will be removed. Right. Well. Alan, uh, I gotta say, I'm, I'm pretty curious now because you had a little bit more negatives than I was expecting. So I am curious what, because you did say you gave it a perfect 10, 
when you came out of the theater. So now I'm curious, what is your rating and recommendation for Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri? So I guess the reason why I picked Three Billboards is because I was more curious to see what my thoughts are now. Coming now that I'm almost three years away from it since I watched it in the theater back in 2017. Actually, it would probably be around this time three years ago um, when I watched it. I wanted to know what my thoughts were, you know, being so many so long away from it. Because like you, I'd only saw it in the theater when it was released, right? I have the Blu-ray of it, but I haven't touched it since. Um, so I wanted to know, that was my biggest question. What would be my thoughts coming into it? And I remember my experience in the theater was, like I mentioned, I was taken away. Like there was, I wanted this movie to go on for another four hours just to sit and live in this world when it, when it finally did end up ending, when it did end. Um, so, and I, I walked out giving it a perfect 10. Would I give it a perfect 10 now? Not necessarily, but I think that I got more out of it going, coming back to it after so many years than I did that first experience in the theater, right? That that biggest message of anger begets greater anger, where these two characters just go back and forth for so long, and it almost ends in one of them dying, right? So, I don't know. I like where this film goes in, in a lot of aspects, because it really does show that, you know, you know, without some kind of catharsis, without something that you know you can really love and hold on to and actually try to fix what is actually going on instead of like just force trying to force somebody's hand you can actually get a lot more progress done um i do like that idea but at the same time you know there are some conveniences and there are there are some things that are controversial especially with the suicide but i think part of it is at least to it's, it's a good discussion piece movie i feel it's a good movie that you can sit down and talk about like okay well are the actions of Sheriff Walla Sheriff Wallaby, Sheriff Willoughby, are they justified? Are the are these two characters justified to go off and kill this supposed rapist that they found, right? So at the end of the day, I do still like this movie and I'm glad I own it on Blu-ray. But I don't think my experience is nearly as uh taken away as I was in the theater, which I wasn't really expecting it to be. I was more curious to see where it would go. So I'm gonna give it an eight out of ten, but it's gonna be a solid recommend for me. Martin McDonough's three billboards is a borderline brilliant piece of cinema. Weaving together dark comedy with heart-wrenching life issues is something not many writers can do. Rarely have I laughed and had to look away in the same movie, and that's what makes Three Billboards so unique, aside from the really long, unusual title. On top of that, the veteran actors in this film give some of the best performances ever put to cinema. I'm especially looking at you, Sam Rockwell. I do have a significant issue with the nobility message on suicide. Also, despite earlier praising the writing, sometimes it just doesn't work, and oftentimes can come across as uneven or characters playing almost caricatures like in a Tarantino movie, which just feels deeply out of place in this often grounded world. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is a great film that receives 8 stars out of 10 with a solid recommend. I'm a bit surprised that we had the same rating. Um, mine, of course, have, has come down since I watched it in the theater, but... I'm a, I'm a little bit surprised. Mm -hmm. I was wondering because I knew I was like, I had a feeling you were just going to like this movie more than me. Um, but yeah, I was a little surprised too. So my rating hasn't changed. Okay. Um, you can go and check Letterboxd. I gave this film an eight out of 10 straight out of the theater when I saw it February 25th, 2018. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Mine has definitely so, changed <laughs> from a 10 to an eight. I'm consistent. <laughs> 
Uh, nevertheless, as we said, we've both picked this one up on, you picked it up on Blu-ray. I got it really cheap on iTunes 4K, but I really want the physical copy though. And I think the physical copy last time I checked was cheap. It was like $7.99 or oh, something. Dang. Yeah. I mean, Amazon's been going crazy with that kind of stuff lately, so I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. Well, Alan, do you have any other film or TV recommendations outside of this? Yeah. Um, yes, I do. I've got two. Whiplash, which we have reviewed as a recommendation for oh, me, and yeah. Room. Not The Room, but Room. <laughs> the one with Brie yeah. Larson. Um, very different films, but uh, no, those are the two that I would definitely recommend. Those kind of have like, the same kind of like, indie feel to it, but at the same time are very much films that I really, really enjoy. Um, so those are the two that I would recommend. Now, for this review, I did go back and watch all of Martin McDonough's, his entire oeuvre of work. And that's not a whole lot, which is surprising, honestly. So I did start with his short film, Six Shooter, which he was up for an Oscar for that film. Six Shooter is, I say, a very solid short film. I definitely recommend checking it out. That came out in 2004. And then I moved on to his first feature film in Bruges which does star Colin Farrell, and he brings over Brendan Gleeson from his short film Six Shooter, and I thought that movie was just great. The dialogue, you really do get to see where this sharp, witty dialogue comes from and where that like European humor really does come from and where it may not translate as well into more of this American types of rural setting. But anyways, I absolutely loved In Bruges. I highly recommend that movie. I gave it an 8 out of 10. At this time, it was streaming for free on Peacock, so I definitely recommend checking that one out. And then I moved on to his 2012 film, Seven Psychopaths, which does bring in Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell. He brings back Colin Farrell. He also brings in Christopher Walken. Uh, Abby Cornish is here. Um, So you can see a lot of these characters from uh, Three Billboards are in Seven Psychopaths, or I should say a lot of the actors. I did not like this one. I thought the third act was actually really good. The first act is kind of interesting. Uh, The second act I just get really confused with. My main issue with Seven Psychopaths is he really is full bore, really to me trying to be like Quentin Tarantino. He brings in a lot of Sergio Leone spaghetti western type stuff, which just seemed really strange. And then, of course, there's a lot of Coen Brothers big Lebowski type plot elements mixed into this movie. I didn't think it really worked very well at all. I understand I'm in the minority. It's certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 66 Metascore, 7.2 on IMDb. Clearly critics and audiences really like Seven Psychopaths. I'm in the minority. I'm giving it a 5 out of 10. A mild not recommend. It was going to be lower, but that third act really redeemed it. There was some truly hilarious dialogue in there. So, of course, there is some solid dialogue and interesting storytelling. I just think as a cohesive film, as an overall package, it really doesn't work for me. So that leads me to Three Billboards being his third feature film. And for me, it's his second best. I'm still going to say In Bruges is his best feature film to date as of this recording, then Three Billboards, and then Seven Psychopaths. Uh, 
I will say he's a very interesting writer, a very interesting director. I really am looking forward to seeing what his fourth feature film will be. But those are my thoughts on his other movies. So of his other films, definitely please check out In Bruges. I think it's a really solid, especially for a first film. I'm, I'm very impressed by it. Well, since it's Alan's birthday pick, he came up with a question after the show. So the question I have is, and I ask this mostly because this film does have a little bit of controversy around it. So um, with maybe the character of Willoughby between you and I, Corbin, at least. And then I know mm -hmm. there's some controversy, like I mentioned earlier, with the character of Sam Rockwell. Um, but my question of the show is, do you agree with three billboards outside of Missouri? Of course, if you've seen it, there's a big asterisk there. I mean, you can't really just, I would employ you not to judge something before you, know, you <laughs> right. rate it. But yeah. Uh, that is the question of the show. Do you agree with three billboards? Well, I'm pretty excited for next week's review. Very excited, actually. So am I. So am I. We have actually seen this movie. I know, listeners, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> You've seen this movie? <laughs> yeah, we were actually supposed to review this like many months ago last year. Yeah. Yeah, we were supposed to do this like, what? Uh, it was supposed to come out in September? Yeah. No, no. It was that. that was I think that was the date it was gonna come out before uh -huh. they just did it anyways. Um it was kinda supposed to come out in J July. Yes. So June if July. you haven't guessed what we're already talking about, we are talking about Tenant, Christopher Nolan's eleventh mm -hmm. film, which we will be reviewing next Monday. You can hear our full thoughts then. I'm almost gonna say from what I've just been hearing, it's his most controversial film. Yeah. No, you're right. That's what I've heard too. It's pretty controversial if it's like, apparently if it's like actually good or not is what people were conversing about. Yeah. I mean, I know some people that think it's pr really brilliant and some people think it's just pretentious rubbish. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I've we're going to come down because we actually saw it in the IMAX theater. So I have seen this movie once. I'm excited. I get to watch it with subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> this time <laughs> yeah same here uh because we were together when we watched that and uh, yeah there's a reason why we didn't do a review over it but uh, we'll talk about that next week yeah so i'm actually excited i can pause rewind i can actually know what they're saying what's going on so i plan mm -hmm. on diving deep into it i think there's only one hour-long bonus feature on the 4k blu-ray that i got i'm gonna watch that definitely so i can understand this movie as best as i can <laughs> yeah but i'm yeah. i'm glad that we're able to wrap up nolan because we were supposed to wrap it up last year and it just it didn't work we could have watched it and probably reviewed it but i got married so i wasn't even yeah. in the country uh i i saw it and i left the country a couple of days after <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so there's a good reason why we're just now getting to it. <laughs> there's a good reason why we're just now getting to it. We have also uh, finished reviewing all of the Rocky and Creed uh, movies. So all of those are ready for you to listen. Our next series outside of uh, finishing Tenet is we're going to be reviewing the now Bill and Ted trilogy. Yep. Which yep. I'm completely new to. I haven't seen any of them. Same. That makes two of us. I would be brand new to this too. I hardly knew that they existed, I think, outside of maybe knowing that the first one movie was a thing. Well, Alan, a happy birthday again, and thanks for joining me. Sure thing. I gotta say, I am really excited to see what Martin McDonough's next project is now that he 
has all these Oscar nominations under his belt. And he's, he started with the Oscars with Six Shooter and his other two movies are just super interesting. So extremely curious to see where he goes next. Fortunately, he's not one of those uh, quick turnaround filmmakers. Usually his projects take about three to five years to come out. But until then, very curious to uh, see what our final thoughts are on Tenant and how we are ultimately going to rank that across um, Nolan's films and see where that falls, which go back and listen to him. We've we've pretty much enjoyed all of them. So mm -hmm. we will see you next week, listeners, with Tenant. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. Same. That makes two of us. I would be brand new to this too. I hardly knew that they existed, I think, outside of maybe knowing that the first one movie was a thing. Yeah. So, and it being tied to Biodome, which is not a good thing to be tied to. Wait, what? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I didn't know for that. For whatever reason, I forget why. There was probably some video that I saw on YouTube that connected the two of them. Oh. Of course, Bill and Ted was held in much higher light than Biodome, but that's no story for another time. Don't tell me I gotta watch Biodome for not. in two weeks. Please don't tell I hope me. Not. Oh gosh. <laughs>